Uh, today it's my privilege to end what has been an amazing series on the names of God. We've gone through what will have been 16 names of God in the Bible. But before we get into that, I want to talk about what's happening the next two Sundays. I'm jumping into the deep end, and we're going to do a two-part series entitled Jesus for President. I'm going to disappoint every single one of you, I think, probably. I just think we need to look at Scripture and find some bearing during such a difficult season uh, that I think really threatens to divide the church, which would be the enemy's greatest doing in this season. And so we're going to look at Scripture and ask what it means to be Jesus people, kingdom people, and what that ought to look like. And I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, see, I get to have my soapbox, and so, uh, but I assure you, uh, we're going to find some guidance together, so make sure that you plan on tuning in or coming and being a part of it. But today, we move from the 15 names of God that have all been introduced to us through the Old Testament, God's working in His people, especially His covenant people, Israel, Um, And today we move profoundly into the New Testament to the one name of God that is distinctly ours because of Jesus, even though uh, it is a broadly used title, and that is the name Abba, Father, or more appropriately, an Aramaic word for the most intimate name for Daddy. Abba, Daddy, or as Silas says to my son-in-law, Papa, right? It's that level of intimacy uh, that makes everything we've learned about this amazing, awesome, all-powerful, all-knowing God available to us. So we are going to start in Galatians chapter 4. And so I'd like to invite you to turn there with me somehow. We don't have paper Bibles in the pew right now, but you can find it online in some way or on a digital device or maybe your own Bible that you brought. And I'm going to read just three verses to start us off, and then we're going to take a a tour through Scripture on the idea of God as our Father. So I'm going to begin reading at verse 4 of Galatians 4. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his children, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. We use the term God as our father in our society in a a very casual way, almost sentimental. Uh, We universally refer to God as our father, as in the creator of our race. And that's what we really mean by it. The the human race is one family and God is our father. Or uh, because of, you know, where our society is, some have just found the whole idea of thinking of God as father is unacceptable now. uh, Because it is so exclusive in its thinking. Of course, we've learned through this series that 
that is just one name of God, and, uh, but it has a very particular meaning. And so even though as a society it has a very casual, almost sentimental idea of God that diminishes him, I believe, the God that we've seen through Scripture, that's not at all the way Scripture uses this name of God. In the Old Testament, we don't see this idea used a lot. It really becomes important and central to the Christian idea and view of God in Jesus. But we do see glimpses of it in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, the idea of God our Father is not as the creator of the human race, but as our redeemer, our covenant maker. And so that's a critical thing. God the Father, not our creator, but our redeemer, our covenant maker. In the Old Testament, Isaiah uses it to speak of God's relationship exclusively with Israel, the people into which he had entered into covenant, and that he had a special relationship with them. It is that relationship that Isaiah refers to. Let me just give you one verse, Isaiah chapter 63. It's a very short verse because you don't see this a lot in the Old Testament. When he says, you, O Lord, are our Father, our Redeemer of old is your name. But let's be honest, the concept of God as a father is not riddled throughout the Old Testament. In fact, by the time of Christ, that would have been um, almost anathema to refer to God in such a way. He was Yahweh. He was holy. We didn't live in his presence. The priest entered into his presence in the Holy of Holies only once a year. And then he whispered that sacred name, minus any vowels, Yahweh. Very sacred thought. And so when Jesus, whose way of referring to God as, in first person, my father, his father, uh, uh, came into the Jewish culture, it was actually heretical. How dare you speak so casually of God, but even more so that you speak of your relationship with God. Jesus spoke of God as his father in a very unique way, not as a member of the human race, but as a member of the Trinity. I and my father are one. If you have seen me, you've seen the Father. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Father, if it is your will for this cup to be passed from me, make it so, but nevertheless not my will, but yours be done. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, into your hands I surrender my spirit. Jesus claims to a relationship of intimacy with the Father was so radical that it was one of the reasons why the Jewish leaders sought to kill him. When you have an opportunity, go to John chapter 5 and just read this encounter where Jesus invokes not only his relationship with the Father as the divine Son of God, but he invokes the authority of that, forgiving sins, 
interpreting the Sabbath rather than following their rules for the Sabbath as though he was in on the writing of it. It was this authority and this way of interacting with God that led them in John 5.18, John says, for this reason they tried all the more to kill Jesus. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his very own father, making himself equal with God. This was revolutionary. And so imagine how equally revolutionary it was when Jesus began speaking to his followers and encouraging them to address this God whose name could not be spoken out loud as daddy. Jesus used that Aramaic word, Abba, when he referred to God. So it wasn't this formal idea of our father you know, like, like those of you who may, your relationship, if you had, uh, there are those of us who never had a dad. I know that. But maybe you had a dad where your relationship was very formal and full of expectation. This would have been the Jewish person's idea of God. You know, one who we addressed formally, who was constantly sitting in judgment over us. And, and you don't make that father mad. Imagine when Jesus made it so colloquial, so casual, so familial, when he encouraged his followers to refer to him as our father. Not just my father, Jesus, but our father. The most radical idea of the Lord's Prayer is the first statement. Our father who is in heaven. Change the rules all together. It's a fascinating thing. No one ever prayed to Yahweh in that manner. How was such a relationship possible? What was the means? Well, this is where the Old Testament concept comes to its fruition. Because just as in the Old Testament, Isaiah refers to God the Father through his action of redeeming his people. Jesus becomes the ultimate fulfillment of that because in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. It is Christ who is the true redeemer. And so how is it that not only was Jesus so intimate with the Father, but he said, you can share with me in that intimacy. It was because of Jesus. He was the one who would make this possible. Consider these verses and the use of the word Abba or Father in them now, even though to many of us they are very familiar. John 14, 6, Jesus answered when Thomas said, Lord, we don't know the way. How do we know the way to the Father? And then Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus just wasn't pronouncing, and this is really important if you're listening and the ideas of the Christian faith are relatively new to you and you think of the idea of God as Father as a universal reality. Here's the thing. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. I want you to have that relationship with the Father, but let's be clear. I am the only path to that relationship because I am here 
to make redemption possible. You see, the story of the Bible is that we were created for such an intimacy with God. And we see it in the garden. As Adam and Eve walked in innocence. Scott did a beautiful job painting this as he talked about the God who is there. And how that was lost because of sin. Sin came into the world. And because of sin, death came into the world. And death in scripture is separation from God. Isaiah 59.2 is one of the most picturesque verses of our relationship to God, all 15 names of God, all that God is. Our relationship to him because of sin is this. Isaiah 59.2, your sins have put a separation between you and me. Your iniquities have caused me to pull away from you so that I don't even know you. So we were all created for such an intimacy, but because of sin and death, we are born apart from that intimacy. You see? That's why John, when he lays out this Redeemer, talks about the one who not only was with God, but who was God, and tabernacled or tented in human form or in humanity for a season among us. And then he says about that God, he was in the world, and though the world was made by him, the world did not recognize him. But then he goes on and he says, but to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, listen to this, he gives the right to become, what are the words? Children of God. And then he needs to explain it more. Children born not of flesh and blood, nor of human decision, but born of God. Now, you may have heard the phrase born again, especially because of the Billy Graham era and the way revivalist preachers use the phrase. And and for some of us, we may think that's old news. We may think it's uh, associated with very negative ideas. But actually, Jesus is the one that used that phrase in the Gospel of John when he was talking to Nicodemus, who was a Jewish leader, who although the Pharisees had kind of positioned themselves, no, we're not going to support this Jesus of Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Certainly not the Messiah. But Nicodemus was caught, and so he visits Jesus at night. The reason is because it was under the cloak of darkness he could get in get his questions asked and and get out not have his reputation hurt and so he shows up and he immediately begins with what I believe is a sort of a a a speech he had practiced you know I've got just a little bit I'm going to get right to it Master, we know, we believe that you are one sent from God, for no one can do the things that you do. And then just as he takes a breath to actually get into his questions, Jesus just cuts him off right there and says, I'm going to tell you what you need. You need to be born again. I think Jesus was basically saying to Nicodemus, look, let's cut through the crap. Let's cut through all the deep questions you've got. And he's, I, I think there's a playful idea here because he's taking away the intellectualness that was keeping the Pharisees from seeing by faith the fulfillment of their very scriptures in Jesus. And he was taking it down to the simplest of levels. You need to be born again. 
And Nicodemus is thrown by it. He steps back. I think, I think he throws a joke at Jesus. I think if you listen to this conversation through the lens of two men being a little lighthearted and loving, which is kind of hard to come by these days, I think he steps back and says, what, should I go climb back inside my mother's womb? And so Jesus says, no, no. And then he explains that there is those, there's the birth by water, which is physical birth, right? When, when we are born and we know it's time to deliver uh, and the mother who is great with child, what happens that is the onset of labor? The water breaks, born of water, right? I've told this story, but there's enough new people here that I'm gonna say it again. When we were pregnant with Tommy, who's drumming today, our oldest son, uh, we were part of a group, you know, and back that was early enough that we had this thing that we actually called natural childbirth, which is yeah, when the wife is with you throughout the entire delivery, which that was novel for, for me, and I needed her there with all I was going through at the time. Um, so we had this little, like, uh, kitty. You know, we put in money for a nice dinner for the couple all in the same week that went first. And the woman who went first, her water broke in the local grocery store. And when it broke, it just broke. I mean, it was explosive. And so she's standing there, and she realizes she's in the jarred aisle, jarred food aisle. And so she quickly grabs a big jar of pickles, and she just throws it right in the middle of the puddle. Manager comes over and says, we'll clean that up, man. She headed off, had the baby. That which is born of water, right? And he says, not just, you have to be born of the Spirit. Jesus' idea here is that all of us, when we are born, because we are born under the weight of sin, we are physically alive. And of course, our spirit exists, but the death is that we are born apart from God. And that's what the Bible means by spiritual death. We're born away from God, and so God uses this very idea of birth to talk about this profound thing that needs to take place by which we become part of the divine family of God, the universal family of God, through the birth of the Spirit. You see how that works? And that's why we see Christ simply saying that. So let me just clearly let you understand who Abba is as God. Abba, or Daddy, who is to his spiritual children. This is who God is to his spiritual children who have been birthed into his family through the redemption brought about by his son, the great redeemer, Jesus. And so that's why the term Abba is meant to be a very precious thing for us because it was a, a great price, but it also ushers us into this unique new family. Another thing the Bible refers to it as is, is an entirely new ethnicity. That's one of the Greek words for the people of God. We're, we're a new ethnicity. 
We are a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. That language in Greek means a thing that has never existed before this moment, a unique act of God's creative genius and, and wonder. You see, what we experience as God's children is what humanity was meant to experience but lost because of sin. That intimacy. I like to think it was a father who called out to his children who had been disobedient and were in shame, where are you? Because he was a father who would redeem and still does redeem today. And so that brings us full circle right back to Galatians chapter four again, where, where uh, I'm gonna read the whole passage again and then Moses, bring up that verse four when I get to it. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his children, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts The spirit that calls out Abba, Father, that spiritual birth, the Holy Spirit entering into our life and connecting our spirit to to God the Father and the Spirit of God, and we are born into the body, right? And so, uh, I'm sorry, I I jumped through it and I got to get back to it. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his children, God sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. And now we move on to the next equally profound idea of our being. Abba's child. Not only do we have this unique, intimate relationship with God the Father because of this new life into which we've been birthed, but because of that, we are heirs to all of God's greatness and glory, all of his goodness. We are those who inherit it all. I want to turn to one more passage. It's Romans chapter 8. And very quickly, I'm going to begin reading at verse 14. It's going to be on the screen for you. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the, say those words, children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, we now cry, Abba, Daddy. Say, Abba, Daddy, Abba, Daddy. We cry that because of Jesus, and he hears us. So, first of all, Paul contrasts our relationship with Abba as those who are not in relationship with Abba as under the weight of condemnation, slavery to sin, What a difference relating to this God would be. It would be like the difference between the father who tells his early adolescent son to go out and mow the lawn on a Saturday morning and he does it out of obligation and shame. The intimidating dad. Maybe that was your dad, I don't know. That's not Abba. Maybe that was your dad. Son. Last week, 
you missed all the edges and you cut it in the wrong direction. Now I want you to get out there and I want you to do it right this time. Get it right. I'm going to be back in three hours and then we'll see how you did. So he gets up. Maybe out of that threat, he mows an amazing lawn. Beautiful lawn. But then maybe around the corner, there's another dad who's Abba, who blesses his child, who loves his child with an infinite love, who accepts him and supports him. And maybe there's another pre-adolescent teen in that house, and the dad comes and he taps his feet and says, hey, son, I need you to do me a favor today. It's Saturday morning. I know you want to sleep, but man, I could sure use that lawn mowed. And you are the lawn mowing master. How about this? You go out early, you mow the lawn, and then we'll go out and we'll do something together. Now the son's a you know, a junior high kid. He doesn't want to mow the lawn. But then he thinks about it, and he hears the words of his dad. And he says, well, I am the lawn mowing master. And he goes out there and with the same diligence, but with an entirely different inspiration, mows a perfect lawn. And he looks at it and he sits back and he says, dad's gonna love this. That's Abba. That's Abba, that's who we are. We don't follow him and worship him out of fear. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yeah, we mow perfect lawns, metaphorically, in our life, but not out of fear of judgment, but because we want to make Daddy proud. We want to give honor to him in the same way he honors us as his sons and daughters. And then he goes on, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we also may share in his glory. It is this idea of being heirs together that is rooted in this phrase that actually in the Greek we are God's child in Galatians 4 is actually in the Greek son. Now, nowadays we soften it to child because we know it means every person, whether woman or man, but this is the thing. Paul uses the idea of sonship in a rebellious way in his culture because he says you are all sons, male or female, Jew or Gentile, slave or free. Why was this so radical? Because the son was the heir. The son was the only one who was the heir. It was a it was a biased society. And so Paul is throwing this idea of sonship right in the face of the chauvinistic, patriarchal, woman de uh, degrading, Gentile alienating, slave oppressing culture. And saying, in Christ, all of that disappears. We are all sons in the best sense of that word not other ways that you might find that offensive. What he's saying is, culture doesn't define you. That's what he's saying is, we are all heirs 
That's what he means by that. It's a beautiful thing. And then he uses four adjectives to describe our inheritance. I found this. I, wanna, I edited it a little bit, but I think it's beautiful. I'm going to end with this. He says, first of all, our inheritance in Christ is imperishable. Everything on earth is in the process of decay, rust, and entropy. What we have in Christ is not subject to corruption or decay. Our inheritance in Christ is unspoiled. Nothing on earth is perfect. Even the most beautiful things in this world are flawed. What we have in Christ is free from anything that would deform, debase, or degrade. He says, our inheritance in Christ is unfading. In this world, colors fade, excitement runs down, value depreciates, but what we have in Christ is an enduring possession. Its glorious intensity will never diminish for all of eternity. And he says, the best of our inheritance is reserved. While we enjoy God's blessings here on earth, Our true inheritance is yet to come. Eternal life awaits, and a crown has your name on it. Thank you, Abba. All of you can call your father, your creator, Abba, today through Jesus. And if you never have, he invites you into that intimacy. And so I invite you, whether in this room or listening online, to cry out to your Abba, Lord, Abba, Daddy, through Jesus, make me your child. Thank you for his death on the cross that makes it possible for my sins to be forgiven and for me to come into life in you. I receive that forgiveness by faith. I enter into this life as your child. Father, for any who have discovered this path into being children of God this day, we rejoice We thank you for it. And more than that, Father, we cherish that all of us who have come into that that new birth can now together call you Abba Daddy. In Jesus' name, amen.